Welcome to Emotional Sobriety. We're here with Melanie Gould and Alan Berger. And um, Melanie, is it uh, fair to describe you as a colleague, former colleague, or current colleague of Alan's? I yeah, I guess we're we're getting to that point. Yes, we are. Yeah. So how did you guys, uh, you know, first um, meet each other or become aware of each other um, professionally? And uh, what can you tell us about, uh, yeah, your what you do? My my connection with Alan, I, I'm going to go all the way back to when I first started reading uh, the, the 12 Stupid Things was my first book that I, it really, it just hit home. It made a lot of sense to me. My previous job, I worked running a treatment court in Washington County, New York, felony level offenders came into the program and I started to give them assignments from the 12 stupid things book. So I would read, you know, part of a chapter and make up some questions. And that was part of, they, you know, they had a lot of requirements and those requirements were also writing assignments. So I would give them question and answers from that book, which they loved it. And I can honestly say probably 90% of the people that came through that program have read some part of the 12 stupid things book. So that was pretty early on. I stuck with 12 more stupid things. And then probably around 2011 or 12, um, I picked up the 12 smart things book. And that was the changing point for me that really opened up my eyes a lot to what emotional sobriety was. I feel like there's this movement now within the recovery community and I'm just riding this wave because I love it so much. So that time, I've been sober since 1995 and 2011-ish, was going through a lot of stuff in life. I just handed you every once in a while, everyone gets handed some curveballs. And uh, I was reading this book and it was it was becoming, all of a sudden I kind of went, I think that he's saying that I'm the problem. And I was really confused by that, like, wait a second. But as I continue to read it, I realized that I'm also the solution. And that's the beauty of it is, you know, being able to understand that, yes, we are the problem, but I wanted to see the solution and it was written out in front of me is here's how you can become happier and become more confident and really find that place of where you fit best and be your authentic self. And it was it was all about me really understanding my part in it and the things that I was doing uh, weren't really conducive to being a healthy individual mentally, you know, sobriety wise, I was, I was abstinent. I wasn't using anything, but finding that place of this is the stuff that'll work for me was really a great fit. And uh, I don't know if it was, I, I think that I thought I read it in one of <laughs> Alan's books, I don't want to medal in the misery Olympics. I don't want to win a gold medal in suffering. I don't want to be that person who's the victim. And at that point in my life, that was kind of what I was doing. And I didn't like it. I didn't like feeling that way. I don't want people to pity me if things are going bad. I want some support. And uh, so I put all that aside. And I really, you know, we talk about post-traumatic rebound. And that's where I was ready to go. And this was a book that opened me up to a whole new way of living and a whole new way of thinking. So that was, like I said, around 2011. And I kept on that. The pandemic came and, you know, my job was, I was overseeing this program with, I think we had about 30 people in the program at that time. And in March of 2020, you know, the New York state, I worked for the New York state court system and they kind of were like, get your stuff and get out. <laughs> and uh, 
get your laptop and go home and figure it out. And so I had everyone's email and luckily the participants in the program had to call in every morning to see whether or not they were going to be drug tested that day. And I would say, I'm going to email everybody a writing assignment or a video clip or whatever, and we're going to talk about it next week. So previous to the pandemic, we used to meet in person weekly as a group. And so I basically figured out how to switch that to do it online. Oh, cool. We started with Skype and everybody in the program, I was just blown away by, even if they had to go sit outside of the library on their cell phone to get Wi-Fi, they would show up every week and we would talk about the assignments I gave them. And I found these assignments or these uh, clips that Alan did with uh, Hazelman. And they were like 20 minutes each. And I would send those clips to the participants and I would spend, I don't know how much time going through them and finding tiny, minute details to ask the participants. They would then email the questions back, the answers to me, and then we would do it as a group and discuss it. But I really went into the minutia of the recording because I wanted them to read it or, or listen to it over and over and over again. And they loved it. That was what I was looking for is what do you like? What do you not like? They were most commonly saying, I identify with the stuff that you're giving us. It makes a lot of sense. And I would switch it up and put other people in. And this was what they came back to. So, um, and then the book came out, then the 12 essential insights came out and it's kind of grown since then for me, what I talk to all of the people I work with about is the awareness piece. Awareness starts the process of change. And we hear that over and over again. And I believe that Tom was the one who added to that awareness fucks things up too. He added that to the awareness starts the process of change comment. But um, I got to go to a workshop at the Wilson house in Dorset, Vermont. I think that was probably two years ago, maybe. Yeah, that was two years ago. And that's when you were starting up your program. Yeah. So I, I went to the Wilson house and this two day workshop and I met these fantastic women we still meet every Tuesday. We do an online uh, makeshift emotional sobriety meeting. The other piece of this, what I'm doing um, now in my career, so I left that career and I moved to Vermont. Where I used to live was Washington County, New York. And December of, I believe it was 2006, Trey Anastasio, musician in the band Fish, was driving through the county. He was under the influence. He was pulled over for driving erratically. And when he was pulled over, the police found substances in his car that should not have been there. So he was arrested, felony charged with drug possession and driving under the influence. And uh, he ended up coming into my drug court program that I was running. So over the course of the year plus that he was in the program, he, you know, we, we butted heads. It wasn't all easy and everything's great. And and he gets that, like he, I needed to say no to him. We needed to say no to him. And he may not have been used to hearing that. And he, but he understood it after the fact. He finally was like, you did the right thing. And I'm so grateful that you stuck with it because he wasn't used to that. So he finished the program. And after the program was over, he was invited to speak on behalf of drug courts in Washington, DC. He invited me to go with him, uh, his family, his, you know, the, the people that are closest to him. It was a it was a lot of fun to go and kind of go through because I'd never really done any tours of of the inner workings of Washington D.C. Got to meet meet some great people, so our friendship kind of blossomed from having that connection after the program and has become a really cool close connection 
on his end of things. So he's been sober since I think early 2007. Um, he was getting to a point where he's a 12 stepper and people were giving, you know, his, their coins to him, like, Hey, I've got 10 years. Here's my coin. Please take it. Thank you for doing what you do because you're an example. And I followed that. And then on my end of things, you know, everyone who came into the treatment court program was referred somewhere for treatment, whether it was outpatient, intensive outpatient, lots of inpatient or residential programs a lot of the insurance machine that was really taking over the treatment um, that I was sending people to. And a lot of the participants would come back and what I would, I would always ask them, what did you like about that program? What did you not like? And I learned number one, food is really important. And I also learned that there was a lot of places that didn't really uh, treat people as individuals. And they would say, you know, I felt like cattle. I would go in and it was like everyone shifted here and then everyone went here and there wasn't a lot about it that was personal. And so I was having frustrations on my end. He was like, what more can I do? And we kind of came together and said, hey, why don't we do a program? Why don't we start a treatment program? And uh, the story goes, he, you know, we talked about it one summer. I was at Soundcheck when Fish was playing in Saratoga. And this was the first time we really started to talk about it. And a couple of months later, he calls me, it was a Friday night, and says, hey, we're going to do this. I talked to my manager, we're going to do this program. And I was like, what are you talking about? And he said, we're going to do the treatment program. I talked to them, we're going to do it. I want you to run it. I have to go. I'm on stage at Carnegie Hall in like 10 minutes, but I'll call you tomorrow. And he hung up and I was like, <laughs> wow, okay, this is it. Like he that, That's it. a flex, Carnegie Hall? Yes, Carnegie Hall. So... That was the start of it. That was about four years ago. And uh, we came up with this idea and we met, hired a management company. And the original plan was to do it as a detox and treatment facility. The neighbors we have were not thrilled with that idea. So after we kind of had to sit in this for it was probably a good nine months of what are we going to do? How are we going to handle this? Because every time we would get an approval from the town or the state, they would appeal it. So then we'd move ahead with something else and they would appeal that too. So we realized this is really going to stretch out for years and people have given us incredibly generous donations and we need to get moving. We need to do something. So instead of focusing on what we couldn't do, we started to focus on what can we do? And I had um, a friend of mine who recommended this place in Minnesota called The Retreat. They are a residential recovery program. They're all 12-step based. It's a self-pay program. So I went out there and I followed them around for a couple of days. Phenomenal program. They've expanded so much in the 20 years that they've been in business. And we decided here we're going to do something similar to that. So I checked with um, a lot of the retreats in Vermont, there's a, a lot of Buddhist retreats and I would call them and say, how do you do it? What do you do? And they were really clear that, you know, you have a nonprofit that is also, there's a component of spirituality to it. So you're good. And because we are able to say we're an abstinence-based 12-step recovery retreat, that gives us kind of this we can do what we want to do and what we need to do here we own the building that was a big piece of it is we own the building we're not going anywhere what can we do so we came up with this idea of a 30-day residential recovery retreat so it's self-pay there's no 
um, insurance that we take. It's called the Divided Sky Residential Recovery Retreat. And we're going to be opening within a month from now. It's been a long haul, and I'm thrilled. We've been doing a lot of remodeling over the past year. The daily schedule includes a number of emotional sobriety groups. There's um, for, for the newbies coming in, we're going to have them do a 12 Stupid Things group, and then we're going to have um, going through 12 Essential Insights as though it was a big book group. And then we're also going to do the step Zoom meetings as well. Oh, cool. That's so, so exciting. Those, those are the three uh, emotional sobriety pieces that we'll have in our schedule. You know, I was talking to um, a friend in recovery. Um, he'd uh, He's got a lot of time yesterday and he told me that his experience has been that not sobriety but recovery gets more difficult as we go further into it or you know the kind of like life's challenges kind of compound as our awareness of them increases the further away we get from our sobriety date and I think you'd said that your sobriety date's around 1995 right and then you said 2011 was when you started to kind of weave in a more emotional sobriety component to yeah. your recovery. And so I just wanted to ask like, what was, what was some of the new stuff that was uncovered when you encountered that? And um, what was some of the most difficult stuff to look at at that point? Cause you'd been at it for a while. Yeah, I think, and I also had read the four agreements, the not taking things personally was a huge eye opener for me in that book. And then it was also, you know, incorporated again in, the 12 smart things that was a huge piece for me. And I even can interpret it as taking things personally really is kind of arrogant to think that the world exists and functions with me in mind. And it was, it was great to let that go because for a long time I, I struggled with that piece of it. I think part of the reason for my original, you know, the, the addiction came from a lot of anxiety and then I got sober and the anxiety was still there, but I would manage it better, certainly better than drinking. Um, so when it came to the emotional sobriety piece kind of let me off the hook with all the things that I would be overly concerned with. And, you know, reformed perfectionistic person who really needed to be involved in everybody and what they were doing and saying and how they could do it better because it was my way. Like all of that, just it, it's a gift to let that go, truly. What do you think, Alan? She's um, it's your work that's going to be in this uh, program. They're going to be going through your book. Yeah, it's, it's exciting to hear that. And it's wonderful. I, you know, I've become a big fan of yours as well, Melanie. And thank you. I appreciate how you show up and, you know, look, you're, you're a living example of, of, and what I hope I am as well is that these aren't just ideas for us. We've incorporated them. We've integrated them into our life. And that, even though we're professionals, we embrace them and we live by these ideas and concepts. And that's who you are. And I respect you so much for that, that you don't hide behind your degree and you're just, you're out there like yeah. I'm out there, you know, and, and, you know, you're, you're authentic and you're, you're, you're doing this for the right reason. Cause you really care a lot. Yeah. I also had the opportunity in the last nine months uh, there, Vermont has, turning point centers which are community recovery centers there's one in each county i believe in vermont 
And I've been talking so much about emotional sobriety starting last January. They said, well, would, you, would, would you be interested in running a group here? And I said, absolutely. And I showed up every Wednesday night and they came and they kept coming and they would bring examples of here's how I used it this week. Like without prompting, they would bring examples of listen to what happened. This was kind of cool that I handled it this way. And they would share their stories. And I, that was just so great to see that just by reading a book of Alan's work helps people to handle life better. And their families are happier because they're not feeling like they're walking on eggshells when we let that stuff go. It's really a beautiful place to be. And I also wanted to say, this was something I thought of just this morning is the, the perfectionistic thing, which I, I work on how that's in the past. Like the, it used to be something that was more prominent, but whenever there was a mistake as somebody who's focused on being perfect, whenever there was a mistake, it immediately would feel shame. And there's no shame in emotional sobriety. So now when I make a mistake, I own it. Make amends if you need to and make note of it. Yeah. I could have handled that better and then move on. It's not, I don't sit in that and feel like the biggest piece of shit in the world because I did or said something that was maybe a little off. You know, as a woman in recovery, I don't behave in ways that are shameful at all anymore. So I don't need to feel shame when I make a mistake. And that was the, again, the release, the freedom of, I don't need to own that as though I'm supposed to be perfect. How was that transition? Was that like when you recognized that this was like a uh, very like clear and present aspect of like, you know, your, the, the, your, your, your addictive machine, you know, how long from recognizing it to kind of like being able to move that furniture, you know, like what was that process like? I think it was, by osmosis because it kind of came much easier than I, you know, I could see this is, this is where I want to be, but I didn't realize if I practice all of this, it will come kind of organically. And when we do, you know, making a mistake is part of what we are today. That's life. As a perfectionistic person, it's all avoiding that at all costs. Because then, you know, there's so much more to it. But now, you know, kind of just transitioned into, I'm aware of things more than I used to be too. Awareness starts the process of change. So I treat awareness as uh, similar to like your check engine light. Something is, is giving me a little reminder and I can either pay attention to it or I can ignore it. And if I ignore whatever it is, it's going to get worse. So that awareness leads me to, okay, don't fall into that trap again. Don't allow yourself. The emotional center of gravity is really about hungry, angry, lonely, tired, stay centered, take care of yourself first and foremost. And if you're off, it's okay to be off. It's okay to not be doing something 24 seven. If I need to take a break and I need to go sit in the basement and watch a movie and eat popcorn, that's what's best for me for the next two hours. I, um, I have a perfectionist, uh, quality. And, uh, I have like, and, and my shame or directed towards myself, it's only led me into like self-destructive. I mean, I, I just, I, I, at a certain point, I think I just had to call it that like, um, my response of shame to whatever you call them failures. I def, I certainly did, but like, it wasn't like, 
it wasn't nudging me towards self-improvement. It was nudging me towards self self-destruction. And, um, I'm still working on that. Like I have a friend who is remarkably accomplished in his career, um, and financially all these, uh, aspects of his life, but he's, um, miserable because he's like literally put himself on the rack because I'm not as good as this right. kind of like impossible to reach ideal. The best thing I can, and tell me what you think about this, the best way I, I can think of to be there for somebody like that. It's a sim- similar, I suppose, to the way I'm there for myself is just to, to try and increase that awareness, just to let them know like, Hey, you know, this, this should, as Alan's always talking about, you know, the, the kind of comparing yourself to the impossible, yeah. you know, it's, it's a thing that you're doing and it's kind of feeding the pain, you know what I mean? Right. And trying to remind somebody of, you know, well, no, like, you know, it's, you're no worse, <laughs> you know, every, you know, you, you, you don't need to beat yourself up for this. Um, you know, it's a uh, shame, shame, not, shame is not like a positively reinforcing um, dynamic, right? No, no. And I think that, you know, compare, why compare yourself to anybody? I just give it my best today. I don't have to compare myself with anyone. I will say there was a time I'm a runner and there was a time as a runner where I would track every tiny second of how fast I ran and how far I ran. And it made it not fun because there's a point where you're not going to run any faster and you're not going to run any farther. (laughs) And I didn't want to accept that. So then the next day I would try more. And if I didn't hit that mark, I'd be really pissed off. And so I don't do that anymore. I don't record, you know, I don't track all of it. I don't, I don't pay attention. I just go out and run for an hour and whatever I hit that day was great. Whatever it is. Some days are going to be awesome. Some days are going to be a lot of work. I love um, that you brought the running up because um, we brought up tennis diff- at different points in the show. Um, Roger Andes is a big tennis player. Alan is. And I just love, and I would love to go deep on this kind of thing one day about like these competitive areas of life that are just so high pressure where, yeah, the perfectionism is like, it's strong in there. And, uh, but that like, there is a way to bring some emotional sobriety to um, the something that like, could be on its worst day as emotionally uh, unsober as something could get, you know, yeah. um, the idea that there, that there could be a harmony within that dynamic, I think is really interesting to me. When were you doing the running, by the way, was that um, in college or? No, I, I just, I started running after I quit smoking in like 20, 20, uh, 2002, I think it was. So I just started running because I didn't want to be unhealthy anymore. And, uh, I really had this mindset that I would continue to kiss. I don't know why I thought this because I'm aging. So I don't know why I thought I'd continue to get faster, but I really (laughs) love it as a sport and as an activity and a way to stay healthy. So there's no need for me to track it because it's never going to be fast enough if I, if I get obsessed again and perfectionism is so overrated and it's also very stressful. Uh, and it makes other people uncomfortable. And I don't, you know, I don't want to be that. I, I look at so many things these days, like it's a marathon, not a sprint. And I just feel like emotional sobriety in terms of like self-improvement, improvement of your, you know, humanity. It's something that over time, if you get into a practice, you know, of, yeah, like you said, not comparing yourself to others in this kind of zero sum way, but just kind of just trying to summon the best of yourself 
repeatedly, you know, over time, you're going right. to like, I just feel like in the numbers, that's going to be reflected, whatever your, your pursuit is, you know, sports, business, relational, right? It's um, obviously we think it's a good recipe. Melanie, can you give a specific example of where you've used one of the ideas or, you know, insights of emotional sobriety to cope with something or or somebody that you've helped cope with something by giving by, you know, helping them apply one of those or integrate one of those into their life or consciousness? I think I think it always goes back to my taking things personally. That was such an eye opener for me to realize that. And and there was a lot of time where I did feel like I was more, <laughs> I don't want to say more important to people than I thought I was, but I really, in my brain, in my mind, thought that that was, you know, people were doing things based on me. Yeah. And that was something that worked for me to just, it was a release of that's not my, yeah. it doesn't matter what people think of me. But and, that's a powerful thing though, isn't it? Isn't it funny? Sure it is. That is? Absolutely. Absolutely. I will tell you this. I'm going to tell you a story about one of the guys in the group who came um, just a couple of weeks ago. He told us this really cool story that he was playing golf and he was with a foursome and there was a twosome behind him. And they were a little, you know, they were just two people. So they were kind of creeping up a little bit. And he started to get stressed about the people he was playing with were not, you know, keeping up as far as time goes, they should have been playing faster. And the people behind him, he was worried that they were going to be criticizing them for not moving fast enough. And he was playing poorly because he was so distracted with what the foursome he was with was thinking and what the people behind him was think were thinking. And he shanked it and he was like getting frustrated and angry. And he finally stepped up and said, why don't we let them play through? And the guys he was with didn't really, they were paying so much attention to the ones behind him. So they were like, oh, of course, absolutely. And the guys behind him were like, sure, we'd love to do that. So they played through. And he's like, all of a sudden I realized I let all of that affect my playing simply because I was focusing on what other people were doing and thinking. And he's then, therefore, that was all out the window. He recognized it. He was aware of it. And he's like, and then I played great for the rest of the round. So yeah, there it is. that was a, a great example. And he uh, he's, you know, he comes to the group every week and was was really hands on with here's how it worked for me. And here's what I'm learning. You know, I call that other consciousness. A lot of people call that self-consciousness, but it's really worth thinking of the other people, aren't we? Yeah. And what they're thinking about us. So it's, I mean, yeah, it comes back to ourselves. But, you know, isn't that the paradox about this thing about we take it personally, right? And we make ourselves so important. And the reality is, is we're not that important, but that doesn't mean you're not important. Right. I mean, it's a weird thing about being able to find the balance between that paradox about being important, but not that important. Mm -hmm. Well, right. Being in the being in the presence of somebody else that you're trying to impress, you know, and just being so overly focused on that. I feel like that's the story of my life. And uh, paradoxically, I feel like they would be much more impressed with me if I just wasn't so overly focused on thinking of myself in the third person <laughs> or, you right. know, just imagining, you know, the criticism, you know, that I would, you know, right. may or may not need to face. Think about the people that love us the most. They know us, yeah. you know, they know us. Our, our inner workings, our quirks, our whatever, and they stick around and we love them and they love us. That's, there's no pretense there. 
that's us being our, our authentic selves. I was going to ask about um, divided sky. Like I got started on my recovery uh, this time around with uh, 30 days um, residential and it changed my life. And um, I suppose you're going to be gearing up with that pretty quickly. Um, do you already have, I mean, you, you mentioned a little bit about the roster. You're going to be um, going through some of the books. Um, yep. um, yeah. What, what else about like that experience? Like, are you, can you kind of tell us about, or, you know, what, what's, what's your conception of like what this process might be? I think, you know, the, the beauty of it is we do get to do our own thing and there are no insurance companies over us saying you have to provide A, B, and C or else we won't cover you. That's the gift that we've kind of been given with because of the, you know, kickback we've gotten, we're allowed to do it even better than we had originally planned. So abstinence-based 12-step is is what we're doing. That's our mission. That's what works for us. So uh, we're really upfront about that. That's it's a, it's a thing that I know there's plenty of people who want this kind of recovery and that's what we're here for. So we've also got a really big component of it that's going to be outside every day. Our you know okay. guests are told that as they are doing the intake you know, here's the deal. We are outside every day. It's Vermont. It's not going to be cold. Bring your boots. I firmly believe exercise alleviates the symptoms of depression. And I also believe that meditation alleviates the symptoms of anxiety. So we also have a component of it called MORE, which is Mindfulness-Oriented Recovery Enhancement. That was developed by Dr. Eric Garland. He's out of the University of Utah. And what this program does is teaches, it's it's going to teach our guests how to work through the cravings by sitting in them. So something comes along, you're uncomfortable, rather than stuff it or run from it or ignore it, sit in it and work through it. And the more you do that, the better you get at working through the cravings, first of all, and the less they pop up. And I've done this training and it's fantastic. So that's also going to be a huge part of our program. When I uh, went to my residential program, there was not as much exercise. I uh, I went to the buffet and I think I, uh, I gained like 20, 30 pounds or something like that. And I don't regret, I don't regret it. I needed to, I was completely, uh, you know, I, I was a wraith at that point. Um, but I think that in hindsight, it would have done me even better good to kind of get my body moving and uh, yeah. Yeah, get my thoughts off some of that stuff or into that stuff like you're describing. Yeah. Melanie, when will you be open for business? When do you guys start to accept in uh, residents? We're looking at mid-October. So so really within a month, we had our first week of our employees was this week. We've got 15 with a couple more starting Monday. Um, it was such a great week because again, everyone's mission is aligned. They all understand what we're doing and some of them are in long-term recovery. Some of them are newer in recovery. Um, I, it's just such a gift. I can't even, I, I, this is right. my life. I drive to work every day and I'm like, I can't believe I get to do this every day. Very exciting. Yeah. Well, it's going to be a wonderful place. I yes. mean, mainly because you're running it and you create such a Thank nice you. You're also, I mean, the other piece of it too is, is I'm going to train the staff on the emotional sobriety stuff now, but the hope will be maybe next year, Alan, you can come do sort of a, a workshop for not only our guests and staff, but there's a lot of 
the Turning Point Centers and, and other programs in the area that would love to be a part of hearing you, you know, Great. do a we'll plan on it. We will plan on it. Great. I will be coming in April to do another weekend with the Wilson House. Oh, fantastic. And then maybe we can piggyback something onto that. Sure. Do you know when in April? Yes, I do. Hold on one second. And in the meantime, I'm going to ask, um, what does Divided Sky mean, or how did you come up with that title? Divided Sky is a song that oh. Trey wrote. Um, one of the fun parts of the pandemic was we were trying to figure out names, and uh, we, you know, we kind of batted a bunch of stuff around. I put a bunch of names around. One of them was uh, already taken from, but by a different nonprofit, and then. One of them we came up with was a strain of weed. So we were like, well, I guess we can't do that. So we've settled on Divided Sky. That's it's Trey. It's his it's his music. And we looked at it as cloudy skies to clear skies. And that's what we're hoping for our guests. That's beautiful. Twelfth, so 13th, and 14th, I will be at the Wilson House. Great. I will let my group of sober women know. And then the week before that, I can come out and maybe do some training. Fantastic. But on the front end of that, we could do it on the back end of that. Okay, cool. Hey, I just thought I'd ask Melanie. Um, in my uh, ideal scenario, like this podcast would go on and on, and that more and more people that are recovering would turn to it as like a supplement. Yeah. And um as somebody, you know, you, we were talking a little bit before we started rolling about, um, you know, all the cool podcasts you listen to, like, what do, do you ever think about, like, what are some dimensions that could be folded into, you know, the podcast medium that like, could like, you know, encourage recovery or, you know, I think we're doing pretty good here, but um, I just thought I'd ask because uh, you're pretty smart. I think, you know, the, the reason that I said, hey, we need more women was because I listened to the woman that was on last week and was like, you know, there aren't a lot of women on this podcast. And what I can say is sober women are a force to be reckoned with. Mm -hmm. And they have been through every woman I know that's in recovery has been to hell and back. And they're just resilient. And I, so more women, and I think that your audience is, is primarily women. So at least when I was on the zoom meetings, that was what I observed, um, to bring a little bit of a different aspect and perspective to you guys. Well, when you say they're forced to be reckoned with, I mean, that, that brings to mind, like we do a Thursday workshop and, uh, I watch the chat as the, you know, evening is unfolding and all the, the best bites are coming from the girls, you know, yeah. it's, uh, it's inspiring. Yeah. And we're fun. Yeah. Well, you are. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Definitely is. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Melanie. Thanks and for having me. All the best with Divided Sky. I'm really excited about what you're doing there. It's yeah. going to be a great program. I'm thrilled. Very grateful. And I've just, I've had like this picture postcard image, the whole interview of Vermont. Like you've made me want to go there now and get some Ben and Jerry's. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to send you a picture of, of the view from our, our facility because it's, it's just amazing. Tinge your life, tinge your myth. Cultivate your narrative wherever you are.